Well, hello and good morning, everybody. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I am the host of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. Today is December 16, 2021. It is my pleasure to welcome you to today's show. I'm so glad that you could join me today. Uh, boy, I'll tell you, there's, uh, well, what can I say? It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Well, <laughs> it is, except for the weather. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, I certainly have, that it's been uh, quite mild. Uh, this season, and uh, well, we're going to enjoy it while it lasts because we know that it won't. Anyway, uh, if you are joining us for this show for the first time today, uh, this show is dedicated to the history and culture of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most exceptional communities uh, to live and work in. I am a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich. It was founded in uh, 1640. We're going on, what, 381 years and uh, and continuing onward. So uh, I know that's a long time. And uh, and so it's our pleasure to welcome you to, uh, to our town and to our history and also to this show. We're very, very glad to have you. Now, I want to ask you all a question. Do you have a favorite memory of Christmas? Well, perhaps uh, it was something from your childhood. Maybe it was a special gift that you found under the Christmas tree. Um, maybe uh, you uh, grew up listening to that old song over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go, plus a whole plethora of uh, Christmas carols, of, uh, of course. Um, any or all of these things and more conjure up images of old-fashioned Christmases from long ago. And it really does tar- tag at, um, at the heartstrings, doesn't it? Now, even though we've not been treated to snow as winter cold has teased us lately, I am finding in so many other respects that um, this is an especially pretty time in Greenwich. I especially enjoy the twinkling lights um, on the uh, on the trees that line Greenwich Avenue. We're so grateful to have that uh, once again this year. Shops, offices, and galleries along the avenue have taken on a festive tone, and that goes for uh, other uh, hamlets and villages in town, such as uh, Byram and Old Greenwich and uh, and Banksville and um, uh, Round Hill, other uh, Glenville and uh, all of the others. I hope it didn't leave. Oh, Koskob, of course. How could I forget Koskob? All right. Well, there you are. Um, well, you know, it's. Um, I've always been uh, impressed by the Christmas trees that are uniquely decorated by civics groups, um, nonprofit organizations whose talent for imaginative uses of evergreens, holly, pine cones, and tree lights and red bows. It's just always very, very remarkable. Um, you know, every year. Now, uh, we, we, it is true we no longer travel by uh, horse and buggy, as was done in um, generations um, many, many, many years ago. Uh, but um, there is a certain magic that uh, exudes Greenwich and, um, and other neighbors, neighboring uh, communities, not only around us, but across the, uh, the United States. Um, we're in the unique position being in, here in Greenwich as the gateway to, uh, to New England. And uh, I've had a number of our newcomers uh, come up and, um, and, and remark to me that they are just so overjoyed uh, to be here in uh, Greenwich uh, for, the, uh, for the holidays. Um, it, it's one of the uh, reasons why it is that our town has become so uh, popular and uh, such a, uh, 
uh, an interesting and wonderful destination for so many people, whether you live here or visiting. It's my pleasure to welcome you. Um, we've got some things to um, to provide you on today's show. So without further ado, why don't we just turn around and get started? Coming up on today's show, we'll share some news about how Christmas was celebrated in Greenwich a century ago. Now, have you mailed all of your holiday packages and gifts? We'll share how Will S. Hayes, Greenwich's Postmaster General, extolled the people of the community to do their part to make the task of gift-giving and gift-sending easier a hundred years ago. On the December 9 show, we featured news of the centennial anniversary of the first transatlantic radio message from Greenwich to Scotland. We'll have a follow-up on this accomplishment that truly was, as the headline in the news said, a big feather in Greenwich's hat. Now, once gracing the corner of East Putnam and Mar Avenues near the Second Congregational Church, the Elms was quite an eye-catcher for Greenwich residents and visitors alike. It was torn down in 1942. Starting with today's show, we'll be featuring stories of historic homes and buildings that once graced the town's landscape before they were demolished or destroyed. Now, it was 125 years ago that the Greenwich Police Department was founded, Congratulations. In today's historical police blotter, we'll share news of a man suffering from delirium who was arrested for being on his knees for eight hours at the gatepost of J. Kennedy Todd's estate in his Arden in 1906. <laughs> there, are, there are over 63 cemeteries and burying grounds in Greenwich in 1931. A Society for the Aid of the Preservation of the Koskob Cemetery was formed. Its object was to restore what is the town's second oldest cemetery, located on Strickland Road in Koskob. You hear about some of the history surrounding this often seen but somewhat misunderstood cemetery. Now, as a follow-up to our featured story in the previous show about drinking at Koskob School Dances a century ago, a story, quote, cider at the dances, unquote, cited the work of police throughout the country in what was the era of prohibition. Now, we're pleased to have as one of our supporting sponsors, the Ambassador Museum United States of America. Starting today, you hear about these extraordinary public servants, beginning with one famous to us in Greenwich, his name, Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed Jr. Besides lots of fascinating entertaining history to share, I'll have news of opportunities for public events, and so much more that you can enjoy. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by... An award winner of the Landscape Architecture Foundation, Greenwich-based Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, believes that landscape design has the capacity to transform perceptions and ultimately inaugurate a deeper respect for the natural environment. Since 1979, Peter F. Alexander has been tireless in his commitment to excellence in project design, management, implementation, and personal service. Building upon a cornerstone of experience and trust, he believes that each landscaped project design expands the interpretation 
of design, craftsmanship, and sustainability. Peter F. Alexander is the founder of the Soundshore Environmental Information Institute. His notable projects include the Olympics Training Center at Lake Placid, New York, the master plan of the Calf Island Conservancy in Greenwich, Connecticut, numerous residential projects, and much more. Proudly collaborative in his approach, Peter F. Alexander's creations of immersive experiential landscape spaces cultivates a sense of community and connections that are second to none. Learn more about Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect at sitedesignassociates.com. Again, that's sitedesignassociates.com. You can also call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. By all means, when you contact Peter F. Alexander, please be sure to mention that you heard about him through the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. Thank you. We also welcome Long Island Sound Institute. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. The Institute aims to use modern planning and implementing new technology to conserve Long Island Sound. Looking forward to its stewardship in the area. To learn more about LISI, go on the web to www.li. S-I-S-T-U-D-Y dot info or call 475-897-5444. Again, that's 475-897-5444. And we are welcoming a new major supporter to the show. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum based in Greenwich, Connecticut. It seeks to be a tribute to ambassadors, their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is looking for records, photographs, and videos of ambassadors and their families, or people who have been associated with ambassadors in the past. Monetary donations are also welcome. Funding supports the Virtual Museum, which is receiving support from the University of Denver and the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Throughout the town of Greenwich's 20th century history, a number of ambassadors lived here, perhaps the most prominent being Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed. He grew up on historic Denbig Farm off Riversville Road in the backcountry and served as ambassador to Morocco and as chief of protocol of the United States, among other diplomatic assignments. On future shows, we're looking forward to featuring histories of those from Greenwich who served the nation in various ambassadorial roles. You can learn more at amusa.info. Again, that's amusa.info. You can call 203-347-4604. Again, that's 203-347-4604. Or you can write to Post Office Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Again, that post office box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. The old cemetery at Koskob, located within the Strickland Road Historic District, is Greenwich's second oldest burying ground. 
Though only a few legible headstones remain, the site is steeped in history from the days of the town's uh, early history. Um, it is here that many of the early settlers that uh, of the town who crossed the Mayanus River in 1672 are said to be buried. Um, a small area that uh, features a few of the of the remaining legible gravestones is bordered by an iron fence. If you've walked by or or driven by, you've probably seen it, um, you know, many times. Um, I, I should mention to you that there are quite a number of unmarked uh, graves uh, of early settlers and their families and their identities are forever hidden. We we don't have a written record of exactly who um, was uh, buried here. In fact, at one time, uh, Strickland Road was widened. The cemetery was actually on both sides, and there were graves that were removed and reinterred uh, closer to the uh, the mill pond. Uh, that was done sometime in the early years of the uh, 20th century. It's not the kind of thing that you do to uh, today. Um, there was an effort um, to uh, to restore this cemetery, and uh, this was done uh, through actions uh, taken by first selectman at the time, Wilbur Peck, and he was a, a direct descendant of the town's uh, founders. You'll notice, too, that when you look at some of the gravestones that are in this fenced-in area, uh, that they are encased in concrete. It's not uh, a wise practice to do that today, I am told, by preservationists. Um, who are professionals at uh, restoring and maintaining gravestones. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, that was at the time that uh, it was done, probably about 100 years ago. The oldest grave marker with an inscription on this site, it, it marks the uh, the grave site of uh, Mr. Benjamin Mead. He is a, uh, a direct descendant, or I am a direct descendant of, of his. He died on February uh, 22nd, 1746. He was 80 years old at the time, which um, in those days was uh, quite an accomplishment. Um, his stone is only one of a handful of uh, in Greenwich that are carved from slate. Um, uh, a closer inspection reveals a partial death head uh, with a wings motif. You have to get very close to the stone um, in order to, uh, to see that. It's part of the design work. Uh, that is on there. It's bordered by a floral work on either side of the stone. Um, the death head, or the with wings going out the side, uh, tends to single the or, or symbolize, I should say, uh, the um, the fleeting uh, of life. In other words, life is very very short, and once you go, you fly off, and, <laughs> and that's it. Um, uh, and um, uh, the uh, the thing is that uh, that is very interesting for me about this stone is that this man who is marked here uh, with his grave um, also built the oldest of our surviving Mead family homes. It's over on 33 Orchard Street in Coscob, and that was constructed in 17, or 1697, uh, as I recall. It's a beautiful old uh, salt box that you will see on the... Um, See, if you're driving up Orchard Street, uh, would be on the right-hand side, just past the intersection with Bible Street. It's a remarkably beautiful house. Um, one of my favorites, I should add. I'm a little biased out about that, but there you go. Um, now, uh, I, I know I express uh, probably uh, tremendous gratitude that the um, one of the former owners uh, of the house who painstakingly preserved the integrity of this uh, New England salt box um, and uh, uh, it, it's really just uh, very, very beautiful. And so we, we thank him uh, for that. Um, 
The researchers involved in the historical societies, what was then known as the Signs of the Times House Placking Program, uh, did date the the house uh, from 17, uh, 1697, excuse me. And it is, it's it's not only the oldest of our surviving uh, Mead homesteads, but it's also one of the five oldest surviving homes in all of the town of Greenwich. Now, nearby uh, Benjamin Mead's uh, stone is one uh, of another member of my family. His name was Obadiah Mead. Um, it's carved uh, of brownstone, and it features a badly worn death head motif uh, with wings and floral designs also on either side. Um, this young man, um, he was said to be a son of the aforementioned um, Benjamin Mead. He died on April 27, 1759. He was only 39 years when he died. We don't know um, why he died so um, so young. Now, a legend passed down through the generations surrounds uh, a woman by the name of Sarah Gardner. Uh, she was a young woman who died in Koskab on October 24, 1795, and she is buried on uh, the site. Um, her stone is the tallest uh, that is there. And according to um, uh, historian Spencer P. Mead, Sarah was on a trip from New York to Boston by stage when she was taken sick and was cared for at the old brush house at Coscob during her illness. This house would have been located almost directly opposite um, Bushali House uh, on the side uh, closest to the uh, the Coscob mill pond, not the part where the, uh, the old mill was, but on the part closest uh, off of Strickland Road um, on the, the mill pond side of the um, of the street. The nature of her illness is unknown uh, to us, and the brush homestead was sadly torn down long ago, preserved only through um, uh, photographs. Um, her brownstone marker uh, does leave uh, the reader with a thoughtful reminder, uh, commonly found in many old burying grounds. It was an epitaph that was carved on the stone. Unfortunately, um, most of that inscription has been uh, worn away and erased. However, uh, I and others um, many years ago uh, copied this down, and I'll just uh, read it to you. It's a very popular epitaph in New England gravestones, and it goes as follows. Behold and think as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare to die and follow me. <laughs> There you go. Um, a few plain fieldstone markers protrude from uh, the ground, as does a small marble stone, and uh, with them, legends of others, uh, others supposedly buried here. It's been said, for example, that uh, the um, uh, Indian chief Cascaba uh, was buried here. Some believing other Indians were uh, interred at the site. Um, that is apparently not true. Um, however, it was a, um, a part of uh, the local history of that um, that time, a notion that uh, Spencer Mead and others have uh, pointed out to be um, erroneous. This was not an Indian or Native American burying ground. Oh, I should mention another person who was um, buried uh, here, um, and he was another Mead family um, member uh, thought to have been buried here, and that was Captain Sylvanus Mead. He was a veteran of the French and Indian Wars and, and active in the War of the Revolution on the Committee of Safety and captain of 
the company of rangers. Um, Sylvanus was tragically killed by a group of men known as cowboys, and these were people who were unmercilessly, um, they, they were very unmerciful in their plundering and relentless killing of both Americans and British. They showed no loyalty to anyone except themselves. The event happened um, at the historic Ralph Peck House, which still stands today, um, facing the Mayanus River off River Road Extension um, in uh, 1780. Spencer Mead wrote long ago that the cowboys found Sylvanus at the homestead and, quote, one of them knocked at the door. He called out from within, who's there, when one of them answered by firing through the door. The ball struck Captain Mead, wounding him fatally, and he died the following day, quote, unquote. Some of the homeowners on the west side of Strickland Road may be surprised um, to discover that they're that graves once occupied the sites of their homes and front yards. It's true. These were removed and said to have been reinterred, as I mentioned before, um, nearer to the mill pond when the course of the road was cut through the cemetery many, many years ago, and it was witnessed by local residents. Now, despite the fact that many of the individual settlers' graves at the old cemetery at Coscop are unmarked, we have the latter... Uh, well, the early 21st century are fortunate to have one of Greenwich's oldest historic sites still with us, recognized as an ancient community burial place and maintained by the town government. This is the second oldest cemetery after Tomek Cemetery in Old Greenwich. It is steeped in mystery and history and an enduring example, offering those who ponder the message and legacies of his gravestones a crack in the door that opens our eyes to the past. <laughs> My friends, for many years, we have seen the demolition of homes, large and small, historic and maybe not so historic here in, in Greenwich. It has made those of us who call this place home a bit um, sad. We understand that there are circumstances where uh, this happens. And um, one of the things that I have decided uh, to do is to dedicate a portion of each of these podcasts uh, to uh, talking about a little bit of the history of these uh, buildings that once graced our landscape. The one that I have picked out to uh, start us off um, is one that was called The Elms. Uh, I don't think that any of you would remember it unless you are um, among the among the uh, the seniors in town. Um, uh, and uh, this one w w was demolished, I believe, in 1942. It uh, was at one time situated uh, at the corner of Amar Avenue and East Putnam Avenue on the north side of um, of the, the old Boston Post Road, uh, immediately next to the cemetery and in turn next to the Second Congregational Church. So it was right there at the corner. The Elms uh, was owned by John Graham in 1783, and this comes from a story that was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on November 18, 1905. It made page one. So let's get started. All right. It's, it's an old landmark and stands on Putnam Avenue near the Congregational Church. Famous years ago as a handsome house and is today was occupied by William Sherwood, Lewis Howe, and Harry Peck for a boys' school. Uh, let me interrupt here that the Elms was demolished, according to my research, in 1942. All right, back to the story. Houses have an individuality, just as human beings have a personality, which is made by the people who have inhabited them. Sometimes it is pleasant, sometimes gloomy, or even ghastly. Again, 
it is clerical or it is gay, it is plebeian or aristocratic, just as people are. It may be that a house is old, in which case its character has probably changed many times with the fortunes of its owners. How often in an old New England town do we see a house which many years ago was nothing but a log cabin, which has been enlarged, remodeled, and rebuilt quite as, as it was a mansion. There is your prosperous man of affairs. Again, we see some house which was once grand, now wretched, crumbling with decay, vacant or inhabited by the poverty-stricken. What could more closely resemble the life of a man who had been born to wealth, but who had lost it all and who had given up the struggle of life in despair? Still, another type of old house, which will be observed in New England, perhaps the most common type, it is the house which was once the home of local aristocracies, which the changes of the times have brought down from its high station, but which appears newly painted and patched into a select boarding house or a summer hotel. Be these homes what they may so long as they are old enough to have any history whatsoever, they are interesting, just as every man's life is interesting if only we know it. Greenwich contains many many great uh, old houses. In a few cases, they have been connected with some person or event of national or local prominence in which part its history is known, but for the most part, there is little known of them. Their past is sealed and it is often more difficult to unravel. On the north side of Putnam Avenue, just before one reaches the second congregational church, stands a quaint white structure which always catches the eye of the passing automobilist or trolley car rider. Situated on a rise from the street, it commands a view not only of the neighboring hills and fields, but of the sound, which sparkles in the sunlight a mile to the southward. It is known as the Elms, quote-unquote. In appearance, it is the typical New England homestead, yet there is something distinctive about it which arouses the passer's interest. It is hard to describe just what that something is. It is not the immaculateness of the white-painted walls which shine on sunny days until they hurt the eyes, nor alone the old, old craven oak door which must have been old a hundred years ago. It is not the brass knocker which for a century has called various households to meet joy bringing in sorrow, bringing carolers. It is not the knocker or the door or any one of a dozen interesting features that attract the notice of the stranger. It is the mixture of quaint features of a dozen decades that go to make a whole of remarkable attractiveness. As you enter the house, almost the first thing that impresses you is the remarkable variety of taste that was shown by its different possessors. Each of them was apparently dissatisfied with the architectural ideas of the previous one. There have been built four different L's and additions, each one of different design and interior finish, so that what was once modest little house of eight rooms now contains 
36, all of them large and well-lighted. All through the building are evidences of many successive alterations. It is full of unexpected things, trapdoors, and concealed stairways. There are two stairways, at least, that have been partially cut away and the space occupied by them used for closet room. One of them is but two and a half feet across, so that a large man could hardly pass it, and it is not at all improbable that it was discarded at the period when hoop skirts came in, for a woman clad in that sort of apparel would most certainly have come to grief if she had attempted to mount it in some hurry. It is not unlikely that some indignant lady, after having gotten caught in the stairway like a cat in a hole in the fence, commanded her better half to have the house remodeled at once. Hmm. <laughs> the building is full of surprises, which to, be, which to be appreciated must be seen, and the visitor will not in the least be disappointed. The history of the house, particularly as far as dates are concerned, is somewhat obscure, but tradition remains that some of the older inhabitants are able to recount many interesting events in its career. When it was built is not at all plain, but its erection probably antedates the Revolutionary War and perhaps even the French and Indian War. It is a very old house. The paint and modern paper can't disguise that, and the little latches and small brass knobs on the doors were not made in this country. It was on May 20th, 1786, that John Augustus Graham, named in the deed as a physician of New York, was deeded the, quote, mansion house, unquote, and land fully described in the instrument by one Jeremiah Anderson. And the mansion house is without doubt the elms of today. Little is known of this John Augustus Graham, and little is known of the house at that time. It is said that Graham Flower took its name from this John Graham, and that he was a very wealthy man. And it is probable that the house which must even then have been built several years was one of the best in the surrounding countryside. The house, as is well known, is on the old post road between New York and Boston. Every day the stage rattled by and stopped almost within a stone's throw of the Graham place, so that Miss Graham was kept in about as close touch with the world of progress as one living in a small town like Greenwich well could. We do not begin to get details in the history of the house until it was inherited with 14 acres of land by his daughters, Cornelia and Mary E. Graham. The two sisters were apparently very well-to-do and well-educated. Cornelia seemed to have been the businesswoman of the household, as her name appears upon many documents of business transactions. This Miss Cornelia Graham was one of the patrons of education in the place. Somewhere about 1825, a William Sherwood, who was a schoolmaster by profession, came to town and interested Miss Graham in opening a school in the house. It soon became to be known for miles around as one of the most select and best-managed boys' schools in this part of the country. For this school, the house was remodeled. Mr. Sherwood is described as being very tall and stern, and it is said that he was a good disciplinarian. 
Indeed, a man who remembers the school well says that one of the clearest impressions of his youth, of his youth was the picture of Mr. Sherwood's boys marching to the Congregational Church on Sunday. They went two by two, the small boys in the front. They were graded up to the greatest, to the largest, some of whom were nearly men who marched in the rear. Behind all, Mark, uh, walk, oh, excuse me, walked Mr. Sherwood, stern and unbending. As the little procession reached the school pews in the church, four in number, they filled in as they marched along, and our inform informant says that during his whole life, the idea of order and the word, words order and discipline always called to his mind those boys, stiff in their sun Sunday clothes, with spotless collars and carefully brushed hair with faces of enforced solemnity, filing into those pews with the evenness and precision of German soldiers. Besides being a schoolmaster, Mr. Sherwood was also somewhat of a builder, and Sherwood Place, upon which he built, took its name from him. Later it appears as if poor Miss Graham met with many reverses, the town records show that she gave mortgages on the estate to Abraham Reynolds, Joseph Brush, and Mr. Sherwood. Unfortunately, these mortgages were given on the whole of the property instead of upon her half of it. The result of it was that there was a great deal of litigation and that after the death of Miss Mary E. Graham in, in 1847, the property came into Mr. Joseph Brush's hands. A curious story is told regarding the placing of attachments on the place. It seems that at one time, Joseph Brush and Abraham Reynolds wished to have attachments served. This could not be done until after Miss Graham's death, and each wanted his writ served first. Mr. Reynolds then employed Mr. Benjamin Houston to serve the writ. Mr. Mr. Brush went to Sheriff Albert Seeley and gave him the task of serving his writ first. Mr. Houston kept a pretty close account of Miss Graham's illness and was ready to serve the paper as soon as the lady was dead. When the good woman's demise took place at two o'clock one morning, the vigilant Houston was upon the grounds with papers dated at 2 a.m. the next day, and it is said that both he and Mr. Reynolds were not a little pleased over what they considered a triumph of astuteness. <laughs> Mr. Seeley, however, not, had not been idle all this time, but had sent two of his men to board at the Graham house. This man, apparently out of the kindness of his heart, uh, assisted to some degree in the care of the old lady. He was then in a pretty good position to know the moment when the breath had left the woman's body and to serve his papers accordingly. It was about 50 years ago then that the estate went into the hands of Mr. Joseph Brush. Mr. Brush rented it to Mr. Lewis Howe, who kept school there for several years and for whom the house was again remodeled. Later, Mr. Brush rented, and still later, sold the place to Mr. Henry Peck. Professor Peck, as he came to be called, was father of Professor Harry Thurston Peck of Columbia University, so widely known, not only as a teacher, but as an author. 
Mr. Mr. Peck's establishment was at first a military school, but later dropped the military feature. The school became very widely known, and the Skyons of the best families for many miles were sent here to be educated. Mr. Peck was not only a good teacher, but a good disciplinarian. And what was not an unimportant quality was the pedagogue of those days, an excellent athlete. At that time, many a stalwart man was sent to school, and not a few of these considered it a mark of excellence to lick the teacher. Hmm. Mr. Peck was a man of medium height, but as one man who remembers him says, quote, he was put together for power, unquote, and he was perfectly proportioned, muscular, and active. It is said that one young man from California entered Mr. Peck's school with a long record as a vanquisher of teachers and an avowed, with, and an avowed intention of adding Mr. Peck's name to his list of defeated schoolmasters. The young man was burly of build, and the encounter which took place between teacher and pupil was not exactly Homeric, <laughs> but it was a fight to the finish. That finish meant the hospital for the young man for a period of about two months, after which he was able to be moved and was sent back to his parents with Mr. Peck's compliments. <laughs> it must not be gathered from this that Mr. Peck was pugilistically inclined. On the contrary, all who knew him agreed in calling him a most mildly-mannered man. For a long period, the school prospered and grew in repute until some 15 years ago his death put an end to the school. For six or seven years, a Mrs. Lyman, who had been housekeeper at the school, opened a hotel which was very successful through the beautiful location of the house, its comfortableness, quote-unquote, and Mrs. Lyman's good management. Again, it was extensively remodeled and added to. About seven years ago, Mrs. Gillian took it under her management the Elms, as it came to be called, has grown to be one of the most popular and f- of f- fashionable boarding houses in Greenwich. My friends, my source on this is the Greenwich Graphic uh, in the edition that was published on November 18, 1905. Uh, I understand that the building, which I actually have to be honest, was, uh, I think, one of my my personal favorites, uh, was demolished, as I understand it, in 1942. I don't know the condition of the house at that time. I was not among the living, of course. That was way, way ahead of my, or uh, behind, uh, you know, long, long time ago, let's put it that way. (laughs) uh, um, But uh, um, I do have a picture of this uh, that is posted on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show a site at Greenwich Town for All Seasons dot blogspot dot com um, in the uh, the posting for today's show. It's a beautiful old house. You know, if I were a developer, I have to be honest. I think that one of the things that I would have loved to have done was to replicate these old houses that have been demolished. And if I were able to do that, and of course I'm still fairly young, at least according to many people anyway, I think that one of the houses that I would love to um, uh, to replicate and build again would be this one, the Elms. At one time located at the uh, corner of East Putnam Avenue and Mar Avenue next to the old cemetery, which in turn is next to the Second Congregational Church. <laughs> 
My friends, on last week's show, I mentioned that we were observing the 100th anniversary of the first shortwave radio message being sent uh, across the Atlantic from Greenwich to Europe, and in this case, a, um, a town in Scotland. And lo and behold, uh, here it is a week later after um, I mentioned that in my show, and um, there is a follow-up uh, to that story that I would like to share with you. This was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic December 16th, 1921, so this was literally 100 years ago, and this made um, the first page. The headline goes, Big Feather in Greenwich Cap. Well, that's always good. Um, and the subheadline is local amateur wireless outfit gets one of the first met- messages across. So um, here is the story. Minton Cronkite, son of Elisha P. Cronkite of Greenwich, who, with a number of New York associates, erected a radio station in a vacant lot on the Cronkite estate at the corner of North Street and Clappard Ridge Road, here recently, and entered a con- the contest for sending the first transatlantic test ever planned under the auspices of the American Radio League, have been successful in their efforts, and so far, as can be learned, is one of the first of 15,000 or more amateur stations in the country to achieve the feat. The successful message was sent last Friday night, and Mr. Cronkite received word Saturday morning at two o'clock from Paul Godley, the wireless inventor who caught the message at a radio station in Scotland. Again Saturday night, the Greenwich amateurs put the message over, it being received by Mr. Godley in Scotland. Mr. Godley reported that the message was strong and steady. Associated with Mr. Cronkite at the station is George Burgard of New York, president of the Continental and Electrical Company, Ernest Amy, Major E.F. E.H. Armstrong, Walker Inman, and John Grinnan, all of New York. All of the young men are members of the Radio Club of America. It is their intention to continue the sending of messages every night for the next two weeks. The input of the station is one kilowatt, which is within the written amateur restrictions. It took the young men two weeks to erect the station, working nights and Saturday afternoons. And by the way, if I could interrupt here as I read this uh, this story, a friend of mine um, in Greenwich uh, said that uh, the building that housed uh, the equipment and the radio and everything was uh, built from a converted chicken coop. The, so if you have a chicken coop, never you never know what you're going to be able to do with it. Who knows? Anyway, back to the story. Next week, an additional station is to be constructed and these Greenwich amateurs intend to make a test in sending a wireless telephone message across the Atlantic. Mr. Cronkite and his wireless associates were assisted by, uh, at the station by John Cullen, driver of the Amagerone Fire Company's autochemical. Texas, his name is uh, quote-unquote Texas McBain and other members of the company who some time ago had a radio wireless installed in its truck house. The Greenwich station has been pronounced by expert wireless men to be one of the finest. Mr. Cronkite is associated with his father in business in New York, the latter being a cotton commission merchant. And again, my friends, uh, the source of this is uh, from the Greenwich News and Graphic, published on December 16th, 
1921 on pages 1 and 14. So that is a big feather in Greenwich's cap. Congratulations. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are marking the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. And boy, do I have a story for you. This one... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this one dates from November 23rd, 1906. It made the front page of the Greenwich News at that time. And um, I, I'm trying to visualize this. Maybe you're going to do it for me. The, uh, the headline is, Arrested While Praying. People in Sound Beach imagined that the ancient blue law against witchcraft and the worshipping of idols had been revived the other morning when they saw Constable Addison Palmer arrest Michael Coleman, who was on his knees praying in front of one of the big carven images on J. Kennedy Todd's gatepost. Now, uh, to uh, to point out, the uh, the J. Kennedy Todd estate, of course, is in his Arden, which we know today as, uh, as Greenwich Point, uh, the town beach over in Old Greenwich. Let's continue with the story. All right. He had been there in a kneeling position nearly eight hours when the arrest was made, and it was so stiffened that he had to be pulled to his feet. Michael objected strenuously after he was locked up. Quote, they arrest a man for stealing and they arrest a man for fighting. Quote, he said, unquote, that's all right. But when they go, when they get so that they arrest a man for praying, how is anyone safe at all? Unquote, he asked. Well, it, de- it developed, <laughs> according to the story, that Michael was not worshipping Mr. Todd's gatepost. However, he was merely suffering from an attack of delirium tremens and in his aberration was repeating his childhood prayers again and again, as if his very life depended upon it. Officer Palmer was afraid that if he did not have some treatment, he might die, so he took him into custody. Now, this story, its uh, its headline is Cider at the Dances, actually dates from 100 years ago, December 16, 1921, um, and it says police attention called to jugs stored in automobiles. Now, of course, at this time, 100 years ago, prohibition was in full swing, as they say. So, um, as you know, I uh, had featured a story last week about uh, drinking parties that were going on over at Coscob School. Uh, so this is kind of a follow up to, uh, to that of sorts. At some of the dances out in the country lately, it has been quite fashionable to have stored in a car a jug of cider, which the owner or owners would investigate during dances, says the New Milford Times. Sometimes in the warm hall, the fumes of cider would not be pleasant when mixed with orris root odor, and sometimes some of the young men would be a little more chipper than the occasion warranted have difficulty in keeping heels from hitting ceilings and other spots far removed from the floor. Sometimes such cavorting did not add to the pleasure of those who merely wanted to dance. At one country dance the past week, however, things were different. There were special officers on the job and were not afraid to let all and sundry know it. Cars were searched with flashlights and any jug, jar, bottle, thermos, or other container which contained as if it contained any potential fluid that was uh, confiscated forthwith, and as a rule, the contents were emptied on the ground. Of course, some thought it was an interference with personal liberty, but the method caused all to be dreadfully sedate and sober, particularly 
as the officers had the law back of them and did not appear to be afraid of any one of the visitors. We're pleased to have as a supporting sponsor of the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, here in Greenwich, Connecticut, perhaps probably the most famous ambassador that, that we have had, certainly in the, um, in the 20th century, was Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed, Jr. He lived up at Denbig Farm on Riversville Road up in the backcountry. He had quite a career, and I'd like to, uh, to share some of that with you. Joseph Werner Reed, Jr. was an American banker and diplomat, and he served as United States Ambassador to Morocco from 1981 to 1985, and he was also the Chief of Protocol of the United States from 1989 to 1991. He was born in New York City in 1937. As I said, he grew up on on Degbig Farm in Greenwich and also in Corsair in Hobe Sound, Florida. Florida, sorry. He was uh, educated at uh, Deerfield Academy. It's a private boarding school in Deerfield, Massachusetts. And he also graduated from Yale University in 1961. Uh, Mr. Reed began his long career at the United Nations in 1985 after four years as ambassador to Morocco under President Ronald Reagan. He began as United States representative to the organization's Economic and Social Council, where he was responsible for African issues, and later held the rank under Secretary General serving Javier Perez de Cuellar, Boutros Boutros Ghali, Kofi Annan, and also Ban Ki-moon, who appointed him as special advisor in 2007. Now, his enthusiasm for the United Nations, uh, and, and it's noted in my uh, source that his license plate read USA-UN, occasionally led to conflict with President Reagan, who regarded the organization with, uh, shall we say, something of a cold eye. Um, at a United Nations lunch in September 1988, Mr. Reed warned President Reagan, that unless the United States paid its back dues, uh, he ran the risk of being known as the president who closed the doors on the organization. So two months later, when the State Department barred Yasser Arafat, the chairman of the Palestine Liberation Organization, from entering the United States to address the General Assembly, Mr. Reid sent a scolding letter to the president saying that the move would cause, quote, incalculable damage to the United States credibility in the world arena, unquote. Mr. Reid absented himself from the United Nations for two years when the first President Bush, whose parents had been close friends of his parents in Connecticut, appointed him chief of protocol in 1989. Now, uh, he threw himself into the job, much of it involving the care and handling of resident diplomats and foreign heads of state visiting Washington. New ambassadors delighted at the flourish of trumpets, waving of flags, and presidential one-on-one that now constituted the official greeting package. Quote, it used to be a 30-second in-and-out with just a quick handshake. Mr. Reed told the New York Times in 1989, now it's a warm welcome by the leader of the free world and the first lady of the land. Exuberance sometimes led him astray. He told an audience at Hofstra University in 1987, jokingly, that he had committed more gaffes than any other chief of protocol in the history of the United States. Quote, I flew flags upside down. I flew the wrong flags. I had the wrong national anthem, anthems playing. I've done everything wrong, quote-unquote, he said. 
<laughs> oh my. Most remarkable was the affair of the talking hat. In May 1991, Queen Elizabeth II, at the start of an official visit, stepped up to a lectern at the White House lawn to deliver a few remarks. Unfortunately, the lectern was sized for the president, who was eight inches taller than the queen, and her face was hidden behind a cluster of microphones. Quote, you literally could not see her face as she spoke, just the hat bobbing up and down, Barbara Bush wrote in her book, Barbara Bush, a memoir, published in 1994. A Reuters reporter described the queen as looking like a giant walking mushroom. When one newspaper ran a photograph of the event with the caption, The Talking Hat, the slip-up entered the annals of diplomacy. His boss, although furious at the time, ultimately overlooked the episode. In a statement to the newspaper, The Greenwich Time, for its obituary of Mr. Reed, Mr. Bush called him, quote, the quiet mastermind who literally helped set the stage for the diplomatic progress we have made during a historic period of global change, unquote. He called him, quote, the ideal chief of protocol, perhaps the finest in modern history, unquote. Again, Joseph Werner Reed Jr. was born on December 17, 1937 in Manhattan. He grew up in Greenwich. His father, Joseph Sr., spent much of his family's oil and mining riches back on Broadway shows, a less-than-successful pursuit that he recounted in a 1935 memoir, The Curtain Falls. He also helped found the American Shakespeare Festival at Stratford, uh, and uh, his mother, the former Permelia Pryor devoted herself to charitable causes. May I let you in on a secret? In my not-so-humble opinion, nothing beats the comfort and soothing qualities of a good, hot cup of coffee in a historical setting. The Coffee for Good Cafe is located in the stone 1858 Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church of Greenwich. My friends, this is not your ordinary high-end retail coffee shop. Coffee for Good is a new, unique, nonprofit partnership with the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Coffee for Good's authentically historical, legendary ambiance will make you want to sip and stay for hours. Believe me, I'm there. <laughs> Enjoy exquisite indoor and outdoor dining. The service is attentive and friendly. And did I mention, ready for this, that the parking is free? Hey, just saying. Oh, and let me throw this into this free Wi-Fi. Need a place to study, work, read, meet up with friends, or just relax? Make Coffee for Good your destination. It's certainly one of mine. 48 Maple Avenue in the 1858 Stone Solomon Mead House. Open 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Saturday. Closed Sunday. Learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Again, that's coffeeforgood.org. You know, I have been a member of the Greenwich Historical Society since the 1980s. Well, it's true. I know that's a long time, but you know what? It's been worth it. And I am inviting you to also join the Greenwich Historical Society, or if you have not done so, to please renew your membership. I have to tell you, my friends at the Greenwich Historical Society derive a great deal of pressure hosting visitors 
at the museum buildings, at the galleries, at the museum store, uh, at the Bush Holly House, uh, at the lovely gardens and grounds. It, it's really uh, just a wonderful thing to, um, uh, to behold. You often hear me say that you are a part of our history. Um, and visits to the Greenwich Historical Society at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob are engaging, fun, and they are educational for all. It really is your chance, whether you are a newcomer to, uh, to Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, or uh, you are a, a resident of uh, many, many years, it really is your chance to connect with um, Greenwich's stories, past, present, and even be part of the future, as well as understand why these stories and our history are so significant. We want you to become a part of this special community, and so you are invited Absolutely. You know, visitors are an essential part of the Greenwich Historical Society's fabric. Um, the museum experience and feedback that, uh, that you provide guides the Greenwich Historical Society in making its exhibits and programs more engaging, fun, and educational. Now, my friends there understand that you want to feel connected to the stories we present as well as understand why those stories are significant. We at the Greenwich Historical Society want you to become a part of that community. And the very fact that you are able to enjoy the collections on site and online is a result of the Greenwich Historical Society's ongoing investment in its physical and digital museum. So, my friends, on behalf of the Greenwich Historical Society, I would like to ask you to uh, to help out uh, by becoming a member uh, or renewing your membership or even just making a donation uh, today. You know, there are multiple membership levels uh, that are in place, and the privileges of each me membership are available online at GreenwichHistory.org. Now, no membership is too small to make a difference. So joining and or renewing is uh, is easy. You can do it, and uh, you can do it by um, by envelope, which you can pick up or, or have mailed to you from the Greenwich Historical Society. Um, probably the best way to do it, which is the way that I do it, is by um, doing so online through the website at GreenwichHistory.org. You just go through the menu. You'll see where um, it, it is that you go, and it's very, very easy to do online and very secure by by the way, I want to emphasize that to you. Now, one person that uh, that you can uh, contact is Laura Kelly. She is in charge of membership and development. Um, she can be reached at 203-869-6899. My friends, I want to thank you very, very much. Uh, as a descendant of the founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, for your interest in preserving our history and culture, and especially in supporting the ongoing mission, the ongoing going work of the Greenwich Historical Society. As we are starting to wind down today's December 16, 2021 show, I wanted to share with you some ways that the people of Greenwich celebrated Christmas 100 years ago. At the Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church, I, Stanley Jacobs, pastor, services will be resumed on Christmas Sunday at the Rebuilt Church on Lake Avenue, says a story that appeared in the Greenwich News and Graphic on December 16, 100 years ago. At 9.30 a.m., early prayer meeting and general class, 11 a.m., morning worship, sermon by the pastor, subject, Following the Star, Christmas music by the Junior Choir, the following Christmas anthems will be sung. The Prince of Peace, Come All Ye Faithful, Christians Awake, Break Forth Into Joy. 
at 3 p.m. Sunday School Christmas Exercises. A Christmas service entitled The Gift of Love will be rendered by the Sunday School at 6.30 p.m. Allen Christian Endeavor League. The pastor will give a radio opticon, I don't know what that is, illustrated talk on the subject Christmas Thoughts. At 8 p.m., Miriam, a Christmas song story by the Senior Choir, assisted by six young ladies, illustrated with stereo opticon slides. The choir will also sing Gloria, arranged from Mozart. The public is cordially invited to all of these services, and that happened at the Bethel African American Episcopal Church in its same location as it was 100 years ago, on Lake Avenue. What else do I have here? Let me see. I know I had a couple of things. Let me see what this is. Oh, yes, Community Christmas Carols, all right? Um, this was also on the 16th uh, of, uh, of December in 1921. Greenwich is to have its Community Carol service as in previous years. It will take place at the Post Office Plaza on Friday, December 23rd at 6 p.m. and in case of inclement weather, will be held in the Havemeyer School Auditorium. The service will be held under the auspices of the Greenwich Council Boy Scouts of America and will be conducted by Dr. Carl F. Martin, who is Vice President of the organization. Boy Scouts will distribute leaflets at the service. A quartet of horns from Kearney's Orchestra will furnish the music. A group of public-spirited citizens will defray the expenses and the lights for the Christmas tree will be donated by the Connecticut Light and Power Company. An invitation has been extended to the clubs and organizations to be present in mass and so add to the festive spirit. I'm sure that there was much else going on, but that's all I have for you right now for today. And also it's all, I, I hate to say it, but we're running out of time. <laughs> It's time for me to go. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I am a descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. It is my pleasure to have you on with me today on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show. Uh, it is really such a pleasure to share with you the history and heritage and culture of this extraordinary place that we call home, Greenwich, Connecticut. We're going on 381 plus years of history, and we've got a lot more to to do and a lot more to cover. Now, my friends, I want you to uh, to mark your calendars. I am going to have a podcast show, and we're going to be sharing that on Christmas Eve. That's December 24th, 2021. If you would like to get on my email list, and I would love to invite you to please contact me uh, to be so, please contact me at Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Again, that's Greenwich, a town for all seasons at gmail.com. Now, for those of you who like social media, and I do, I am on Facebook quite a bit. So look for me, that's Jeffrey Bingham Mead. You can also look for the show, a Greenwich, a town for all seasons. Uh, and uh, you can message me there that way. Uh, I sure hope that I see you around town between now and Christmas and even over the holidays as we wind down year 2021 and get ourselves ready for year 2022. My, what a ride it has been. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure having you with me today. I'm going to let you go. I've got some things to do. So you have a great weekend ahead and a great week coming up as well as we start the countdown toward Christmas. I'll see you then. Bye-bye now.